Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Hey there, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to the first year celebration for the podcast. Uh, We are celebrating here with our old friend Brad Perry, who was our first guest last year, and he's come back to join us for our first birthday. (laughs) So I'm happy to have Brad here, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, welcome, Brad. Thanks for coming. Hey, thank you. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Oh, you bet, man. We had we. It was such a great talk last time. I really enjoyed it. I couldn't, you know. I was I was hoping we get a chance to talk again, and uh, so here we are. So when I thought of this anniversary show, I thought, well, you know, I can't believe I've done it this long. I can't believe it lasted this long. But yeah. um, it was always my intention to get back to you. And when I thought of doing an anniversary thing, you were the first person who came to mind. So oh, thank you. Yeah, so I'm really happy to have you here. And you have some weird kind of Schultzian news in yeah. our audience. Um, you know, I, I, like we talked about last time, I live in St. Paul, and I, you know, this is very strange. Um, but I wound up, you know, we found a house, really liked it, and I was reading, I mean, you know, I mean, I know that knew that Schultz was here. I didn't know that I was going to be living a block from his house. It sounds like something you might have planned, you know. Yeah, serve- you know, I wish I could say that I had, because that would make a lot more sense. Because then I could <laughs> say, well, you know, I mean, I knew the address. I mean, the address is commonly out there. You know, I looked it up and I said, hey, you know, is there a house for sale right by his house? <laughs> and I wish I could say that, you know, this was all very carefully planned, uh, but I can't. It happened. I was. I was sitting on my porch and I was actually looking curiosity. I'm like, well, you know, because the Charles M. Schultz arena is down the street. Mm -hmm. So I knew, okay, well, he's in the area, you know, some like clearly he's in the area. So that's not a surprise. But I wonder what street he was on. So I was looking at it and uh, lo and behold, they're like, well, you know, he grew up, you know, by Maddox Park. And I'm and I'm thinking, you know, that's the park that's across the street from me. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, so that was very funny it was uh one of those nice little things it was like oh well isn't that pleasant so i can now whenever i want um i used to be able to you know go and drive by houses that he used to live in but now i can go and uh walk past them talk about living in the shadow of of you i know, suppose Europe. so you know yeah. there's no well you know what it's one of those things now and it's funny because i uh drive to work Mm-hmm. And every day I drive to work and I pass uh, the Charles M. Schultz Arena. A good reminder on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. I got to actually, I think there's some discussion as far as, you know, what the actual house is. Like, I think there are a couple of different addresses. Oh, but I, I figure see. if I just walk the streets mm-hmm. comprehensively, you know, like every single, past every single house, and eventually just by mathematics, you know, statistically yeah. speaking, I will have walked past the house. You will have walked past the house and soaked up all of the uh, the wh- whatever vibes are left you know, for, <laughs> you to, for you to, you know, the, buy the, the Charlie Brown depression will yeah. I'm sure, uh, be right there. So, yeah, but so that was a, that's a lot, a lot of fun. Anyway, so so this is the neighborhood that he grew up in. Yeah, I guess for a while when he was a kid, he lived uh, down here in the I guess what they call the. Highland Park neighborhood, and uh, I think he lived down here twice. And it was—it seems to me—I'd have to read more about it. I mean, someone out there, of course, as you can imagine, you know, they have a detailed timeline. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank God for people like us, so that we can look at it ourselves. Yes. Uh, of you know what houses uh, Schultz lived in, uh, what years, and when. But it's it's uh, very interesting because of some of the speculation. Um, the one article I read where. They actually started taking pictures of 
the uh, pitcher's mound at Maddox Park. It's not really a pitcher's mound. It's just kind of a, you know, regular whole, you know, worn area in the baseball diamond that mm-hmm. you, know, you pitch from. Uh, uh-huh. So they're speculating whether that how what was the role played by this uh, <laughs> this, this this particular pitcher's mound? Yeah, this little spot of earth right here was this the inspiration for it all was the where count? it started? Yes, where yeah. it all <laughs> happened. So yeah. anyway, that was, I mean, I, it's one of those things where I've driven past the house before, but I've never, you know, looked down and, hey, let's memorize the address and keep track of this. Yeah. Um, but so, so I, I'm, I've been having a lot of fun with that. That's it was, so oh, it, a nice surprise. Is it in the city itself or? Yes. Or, yes, it's right yeah. in the city itself. Yeah, it's in uh, the, it's on, I think, the southern part of the city. So, you know, if you're, you know, for those of you out there who understand where McAllister College is, uh, you know, it's a couple of blocks south of there. Okay. So south of the 94 Highway, south of where the, way south of where the um, new uh, Minnesota soccer team plays. I see. And and is it uh, a neighborhood of townhouses or are they uh, single houses? houses? Yeah, it's a residential area. I mean, it's uh really pretty... uh, you know, parts of it uh, get pretty nice uh, mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, obviously, there's uh, some money around uh, the McAllister area. Uh, and then on the edge over, you know, here where the, the houses are uh, still very nice, don't get me wrong, but a little more modest. You know, mm-hmm. it's a old, you know, 1920s bungalows style. Oh, okay. Yep. Got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So so this isn't the, the neighborhood that found its way into Peanuts. This is uh, a, an older city neighborhood. Um, I think think of it that way it definitely um you know that's really a good question i've wondered that even with tom and jerry like when i watch tom and jerry cartoons i want to know what los angeles neighborhood the uh, background artists lived in that Uh they decided to paint the backgrounds like this um but i think you know it's a very um obviously peanuts i think most people myself included uh think of it as a suburban neighborhood you know, I would say I would say that one of the things I like about St. Paul is that it is not a really densely populated city, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of, you know, still, you know, very much single family homes. And uh, and then you, know, you get you do get some of the, um, you know, early uh, apartment uh, flats, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. where it's not really an apartment building, properly speaking. It's maybe a three flat or a six flat. You know, right. something like that. Uh, so it's still it's it's definitely it's not suburban, but it is, uh, you know, tree lined streets. I mean, sure. I got to tell you that I was saying to my wife, it's the neighborhood. If this place got built in 1920, all the trees have reached maturity. So it's nice. You know, you live in a neighborhood where the trees are. It's the the place yeah. is covered by a canopy of foliage. That sounds lovely. You know, very. Yeah, it is. Nice. Yeah, very nice. And I'm sure everything is turning color now. And uh, yeah, it is. Um, and that's definitely uh, something I'm I'm trying to work into uh, some strips. But I think about uh, the, the um, obviously peanuts, the, the leaves are constantly falling. <laughs> yeah, and metaphorically so, as well as literally. Yes. Yeah. Know? So, you know, I mean, that's that's one of the things that always I enjoy about Schultz. Uh, is despite being in California, uh, he really is attuned still to that, uh, I would say, Midwestern, uh, at least, sensibility of changing seasons. You know, you've got yeah. four seasons and, the, I, you know, and I think fall lends itself to Peanuts. There's a there's a there is that melancholy uh, to Peanuts, which is part of what I think I think most people would say. Uh, you know, really distinguish, still distinguishes the strip. Well, you know, it's very interesting that you say that uh, because it seems that not only does the the geography of the place and the four seasons, as you say, and maybe the the oh, because the climate has such a, a, an impact on mood and and temperament and of any work that might be inspired by it but also there there is that connection uh not only to to seasons 
his memories fueled the strip in terms of its subjects matter subject matter whether yeah. it's the the little red haired haired girl or whatever other slights that came to mind you know things <laughs> that the baseball and hockey games and and all those kinds of things also fuel the strip too so he returned to that material uh, a great deal that well, growing up has an impact on all of us right i mean yeah. those memories are foundational and so they 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 inform everything we do later in life one way or the other even when we're not consciously you know referencing them but still yeah. with schultz it's it's very clear you know he's he's reaching back to the past for a lot of stuff yeah well you know it uh, did you see that uh excerpt you know there's that new collection out the um thoughts on i don't know what the title is i can't remember but thoughts on peanuts and a number peanuts of peanuts papers okay thank you yep uh and you saw they i think somebody was passing around or maybe new yorker someone ran uh chris ware's uh essay yeah and you know i like chris ware's part where you know i think he's right and i've, I've read this elsewhere too but I, I think he puts it very well uh that schultz all of this stuff is is uh, what's unique to Schultz isn't so much that, you know, he has these experiences and these memories, but that he has such a still has such immediate access to them and the ability yeah. to convey that through a comic strip. I know it's that that's because we all have those those memories. We all have those touchstones. Yeah. And yet not all of us find a way to 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 access them. And then yeah. once you've accessed them, you know, let them out in such a. a a universally understood way. And yeah, that's, that's one of the magical things. Yeah. I have that. I, I picked up this book from the library of, uh, library of America is the publisher. It's called the peanuts papers. And there's it's writers and cartoonists on Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the gang and the meaning of life. And it's a, it's a terrific group of essays and I'm about halfway through it right now. Oh, okay. I find it fascinating. Um, it's, it's been, for somebody who loves peanuts and who loves Charles Schultz and, and admires him so much to read it. And the, the writing is superb. All sure. of these people are really great writers and, uh, and some of them really touch into things or, or reach into things that we've all felt, but haven't found a way to articulate. Yeah. And Chris Wares is in, is particularly very good. And one he of really the, gets it. I mean, he really understands oh, Schultz yeah. and you know I saw somebody else uh, of course did you see the review uh, I can't remember Slate gave a review of Chris <laughs> Ware's new book just eviscerating it oh um, you know I I've passed by that because you know um golly I I have such admiration for him and I think this absolutely. is one of those things where people have built somebody up and now it's time to tear them down oh definitely I agree you know? 100% and, and and while Chris Ware is not my He's not like my go-to guy as far as cartoonists of my generation who I admire. I mean, I I admire him enormously. I think he's in he's he's. I mean, if one can be called if if the word genius still has any cachet whatsoever, Chris Ware is in some way some kind of formal comics genius. And yeah, yeah, uh, and his language every he brought such a new approach to comics in the '90s and and since then. I mean, his his language is really so innovative in a lot of ways and his thoughts about comics are also you know very i think very astute and i agree so i have a lot of admiration for him and actually he's also somebody he's perfectly suited to speak about charles schultz because his work is yeah. also steeped in melancholia yes and, and so I, I have a lot of admiration for him, but he's he's not that guy that like affects me deeply personally every time I read him as much as I admire the stuff. Somehow or another, we each have our, our sensibility and our taste, and I tend to go to people who are a little less controlled in their in their language, mm -hmm. a little freer, a little more mm -hmm. manic. It's like um, I don't know uh, the difference between Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes, and and you know I don't know what you would compare it with. The sure. kind of manic quality that I, 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 a freer quality that I look for. And so somebody like Seth really speaks to me. Sure. But anyway, yeah, I think that's one of those things where this is the moment in which you know the guy's built up, and now let's let's take him down, which is unfortunate. So while there may be some validity to the essay, I just didn't feel like filling my head with it at the moment. So tell me what it's about. Oh, well, you know, the essay, I think 
it, 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 you know, it talks a little bit about uh, Ware's characters that, uh, you know, that were always going into a very grim place oh, when yeah. we crack open a Chris Ware book, which I'm thinking to myself is kind of the point. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's Ware's point. So I yeah, don't know that if is... can, can you really penalize a guy for doing exactly what he's uh, saying that he's planning to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, right. Yeah. You know, well, then they don't, maybe you shouldn't read him anymore. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Ware that struck me is the reason I started reading him was because his visual sensibility reminded me so much of Schultz's. You know, the little kid, uh, Jimmy Corrigan, as a little yeah. kid, he's drawn yeah. in there. And I am, I think, like you said, I think spiritually, you know, uh, mentality-wise, very much an extension of, of Schultz's uh, melancholia uh, that I think continues to distinguish not just Schultz's work, but also Chris Ware's. Uh, but I think that's something that is, it, it just shows you again that Schultz, you know, like you were saying, the universality of Schultz's insights here it, are fueling not just, you know, comic strip creators today, mm-hmm. but I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're fueling some of the great art that we're seeing. Well, I'm just thinking about the distinctions and what, like, okay, both of these artists are concerned with uh, melancholy. They're concerned with sorrow. They're concerned with... Yeah pain and depression and whatnot. Now, Schultz is in short bites, and so that's one thing. But there's something that, even when you read him, you know, in in collections, uh, you know, that last span several years, there one thing that augments Schultz is that his, his the despair underlying everything, I suppose. And I don't know if it's actually despair. Yeah. Despair, but it's, it's depression. It's, it's sorrow. It's, um, it's a sense of, uh, low self-esteem, but, but also it's mitigated by his sense of humor, which Mm -hmm. can be certainly admittedly cruel sometimes, but that sense of humor, we laugh out loud, funny. Yeah. And Ware can be funny, too. I mean, there are moments in Ware's books that are funny, but mm-hmm. they're not they're, they're not on that level. Uh, no. And that's not what he's going for, whereas Schultz is usually going for the, the laugh one way oh. or the other. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and Ware, I think, to your point about, you know, what kind of emotions, what kind of experiences uh, is Schultz tapping? And the word that uh, Chris Ware also uses that I think is very... Uh, sums up uh peanuts is empathy oh yeah yeah as a matter of fact he does he uses that word and actually i've turned to the page right here because that was the quote that stuck in my head uh that i wanted to share with you and it says um despite their deceptive simplicity faking a peanuts drawing let alone four of them in a row is impossible the comic strip language was taken back to its origins and into the realm of the red and the remembered, and for half a century, readers of the strip felt peanuts through the singular hand in handwriting of Charles Schultz. In fact, if there is one accomplishment in the art of cartooning for which Schultz should be credited, it's that he made comics into a broader visual language of emotion, and most importantly, of empathy. I agree. Wow. That, that, I think that's a beautifully stated observation. Yeah. And so true, you know, that is one of the things that you, that Charles Schultz did was he created a language of empathy, one in which you felt for these characters. Yeah. And he does so, I think, and I think Ware also discusses this, but it's something, an observation, again, that I think most Peanuts readers uh, would agree with and have heard before, but a, a feeling of empathy and humanness despite a landscape and visual language that's incredibly sparse and yeah. like the spike comes around is incredibly desert-like. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, you know, when you read Little Abner, when you read Pogo, you know, yeah. there's a, a, or a, like a bringing up father. The, yeah. There's setting, there's this lush background. It's yeah. very nourishing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Beautiful. Not that, but the peanuts nevertheless is able to convey that kind of empathy and that kind of humanity with that few, uh, with that minimalist uh, approach, is uh, is quite an achievement and quite appropriate to, I guess, a the you know the explosion of this you know depersonalized, bureaucratic uh, you know digital society. 
Yeah. And also, you know, it's funny to think of because it does become uh, metaphoric for lots of larger issues. And you point to those, certainly. But it also makes you think that, uh, wow, that was something that was enforced, really, because of the size of the comic strip. <laughs> Where also points out, uh, and I think you and I might have discussed at one point, those comic strips from the 50s where Lucy and Charlie Brown are golfing. And how strange that world appears to be to those of us who've come to know Schultz and Peanuts when it was fully formed. When you go back yeah. and you see those comic strips, it's like it's it's an alien world to oh, the world of Peanuts. Yeah, it was really bizarre. And but I think I was as I was reading that, I was thinking think Schultz had to do that in order to find out that was wrong. I don't know if one still gets that opportunity. But you have to, um, you have to do. There's trial and failure built yeah. in the art form. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of contemporary, or at least I shouldn't say all of it, but you know, uh, some contemporary thinking where you're expected to pr pr uh, produce this um, immaculate artifact with no markings of create having been created <laughs> uh, by a human person. And, <laughs> And obviously, with a comic strip, it, pur it purposely almost will not allow it. It's, it's incredibly hostile to the idea that this isn't being made by a human person. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it shows, and it's just like with Watterson, it shows in our expectations now. I think people get unnerved if there are too many people involved in the production of the comic strip. Yeah. Like, well, why isn't this just Charles Schultz? Well, why isn't it just. Bill Watterson. Well, thank God it is, because that's what people are expecting. It's an odd, it's an odd little artifact of humanness. Again, in a mass-produced newspaper medium, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, meeting of the two. In the heyday of the comic strip, obviously, the Mort Walkers, Hank Ketchums, and whatnot were all heading studios, really. And right. Studios wherein the work was parceled out amongst a group of people who, who, whose goal was, uh, well, there's the dogs. Uh, anyway, my dogs are barking, saying hello. Yeah. Uh, so, folks, if you hear hear my dogs in the background, just pay it no mind. What, um, what, what would a peanuts podcast be without a dog? Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. You got to have dogs in a penis podcast. No doubt yeah. about it, because Schultz was a dog lover. That's for sure. So, yeah, the studio approach to to comics is was venerable. It's a venerable tradition. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. I think Garfield is produced that way still. I think uh, although I might be wrong, uh, Mort Walker's Beetle Bailey was was produced that way. I think always Johnny Hart's B.C. was produced that way. Uh, Hank Ketchum, certainly, you know, with Dennis the Menace, that's the way he conceived of it as a, as a, yeah. a property rather than a, a vehicle for personal expression. So mm -hmm. when Schultz came along, I think he, I think he was looking to his heroes, but even his heroes like EC Cigar worked with Bud Sagendorf. And I'm not sure if there was somebody else in that studio at the time too, but there, and, and Al Cap, right? So everybody... Yeah. In the business, knowing how hard it is, what a grind it is to produce seven days a week. Oh, he had a writing staff. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, but Schultz never, never did. And so what does that contribute to? Well, it contributes to a lot of stuff. We're trying to do a professional podcast here. I totally understand. The dogs are not cooperating. So uh, back to this whole idea, you know, when Schultz came along, like I said, even his his heroes uh, were working with a team of people because turning it out seven days a week is a grind, mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, uh, EC Cigar uh, obviously had people in the studio and I'm not sure about Percy Crosby of Skippy. I was just wondering that. Yeah. Were, I, <laughs> no, but I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea about that. Um, I, I wonder, but uh, I'll have to reference Brian Walker's comics history um, to see if uh, what's up with that, because I I'll think be that, surprised he did just because that yeah. is so singular. Yeah, it is very much so. And he was a big influence on Charles Schultz. Uh, yeah. real influence. Understandably. Yeah, I haven't read that much Skippy, so I don't really know too much yeah. about the strip. Exactly. It's, well, obviously, it's the kid strip, but yeah. it's the ability of that four again that four panel gag approach. Yeah, there's an economy to the sensibility of 
Skippy that say even something like uh, uh, Crazy Cat, uh-huh. Popeye, which it, uh, there's even in its even at its most stripped down, I still find Crazy Cat to be, you know, kind of a like a, very much looking at the horizon. It's got a very broad scope philosophically. Oh yeah. You know, whereas Skippy, I think, has obviously later on definitely its philosophical perspectives. But it, there's this kid, he's in the neighborhood, and he does something in four panels and done. Yeah, yeah. And and if I understood what I've, I've read about it, uh, there that Crosby was, was concerned with some social issues as well. But, uh, I mean, it turns out there was kind of a sad end for him. He, yeah, he it, you know, became it, it, ill. And even now, ongoing legally, um, that make... Um, that makes Skippy, even aside from the comic strip, makes Skippy worth reading. Um, but the comic strip itself, I've been really happy with the uh, the IDW uh, reprints. You know, oh, really? really okay. Cool. And, I mean, Jerry Robinson, I think it's Jerry Robinson, guy who did a book on Skippy like in the seventies. Oh, really? Yeah, and that's that was that was what I used to kind of just stick with. But it's just very interesting, and I I, I guess what I mostly get involved with with Skippy is that pen line. Yeah. And, it's just this still so loose and Very loose, yeah. and I think it just lends itself to that minimalist pen art. And of course, I mean, the thing that I love is when uh, Skippy is in uh, r- running around in his um, wagon, mm-hmm. you get Calvin and Hobbes, you get yeah, Calvin sure. and their sled. Well, I wonder how much Watterson had actually encountered Skippy. I do yeah, there there is that one thing I, in the Skippies that I've seen. There is that kind of um, empty background that kind of open yeah. space that Crosby yeah. uses. That I think it it does kind of strike me how that was at the basis of Charles Schultz's style mm-hmm. in the beginning. That was sort of built in, even though you know he had these periodic flourishes of of detail uh, in his work. Uh, it is at his, at its heart. It was, it was built to be spare mm-hmm. and, and via its spareness, um, infer other things, which it did really quite so well. Yeah. I like that idea of being spare. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it certainly shows up in your work too, right? You know, there's a certain kind of spare quality. Yeah. I hope so. Every now and then, uh, Every now and then I get a little, wor- you know, you got to kind of sit back and go, okay, is this fair? <laughs> There's a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> There's a fine line. Am I being lazy or is it? Yeah, exactly. Like, wait, let's, let's evaluate this for a second. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes there was something I read too the other day. Um, I thought it was kind of an interesting point. And that was that when Schultz, so in, in Schultz's drawing, the repetition of scenarios and the repetition of postures and uh, arrangements, compositions, is mm. the word I'm looking for, really. Uh, the repetition of compositions, whether it's Charles, Charlie Brown sitting in front of the uh, Lucy's, you know, psychiatric stand or it's uh, kids at the wall, that there is some comfort that the audience feels in the known. And mm. so when they approach that, because they know it, they know the landscape, they know uh, where they're going with it, they feel comfortable and ease into it. And it makes the meaning and it makes the, the subject matter all that much more accessible. Interesting. Yeah. So if we think about that for a moment, there's a rationale to be lazy if you want to be. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, just I'm imagining if he had drawn it, you know, again, like with even the some of the uh details that uh you know Watterson comes up with or let's say the backgrounds you know uh Terry and the Pirates you know something you know much more um involved you know I think it's a really interesting point I mean I think it probably it forces you really as the reader to focus on what is the strip saying I mean you don't have the luxury of getting lost in you know uh Roy Crane's um, um, horizon of, mm-hmm. you know, the plane flying over the ocean or whatever, the, the use of the craft tint. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's very much like here it is. It's again, it's very efficient. It's very economical. Um, you know, I like that. And I, I mean, I guess when you're saying like, as far as 
informing, I mean, I've always thought, I, I can't remember if it was Schultz or someone else, but it might just be a general observation about art in general, but you want just the right amount of lines, you know, mm-hmm. not too few, not too many. Right. And I, and I don't, I, I like the idea of trying to learn that sensibility. And uh, I think for me, at least the person to look at is Schultz. Like if there's, if there's something in that frame mm-hmm. for Schultz, yeah. I want to know why. Well, and, and you do know why in Schultz, yeah. you know what I mean? You do yeah, know. You do. And I'm, I'm flashing back on some of the early strips from the fifties, maybe the middle fifties. I don't know. It, it's not exactly when the kids are so oval headed as they were in those first couple of years, but it's maybe a little later. Um, but before the classic style starts to codify. And I'm thinking that there were details in those like playrooms where the kids were, where Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy might be sitting and playing or something. There might be like, there's curtains, there's a chair. Yeah. Um, or, uh, there is a, maybe a ball or a toy box or something around the room, but they're all very distant from each other. They're all spread out. Mm. They're, they're not crowded. And I was thinking, and it's kind of silly because Schultz was a grown man when he was drawing this, but your experience of space when you're a child is very mm. different. You know, yeah. uh, things that, you, that are from an adult perspective, very close together uh, may not seem that way to a child. They, oh, may, definitely. Well, the, the no? classic one being, you know, something that you thought was huge, you know, go back. And you visit a place that you lived in as a kid. Oh, yeah. In your head, you're thinking, my God, that room was huge. You get in and you can barely fit in there. Right. Oh, well, next door to to us, we lived in a little suburb and there was a little hill. We would sled ride on it. And I thought this hill was, you know, huge, you know, when I was a kid. And and it always loomed large in my memory. So went back there one time and I couldn't believe it. It was just a little knoll, (laughs) barely barely a hill at all, you know, and. And that's the kind of experience that translates. And so when I was a kid reading the comics, I, I kind of intuitively understood that space and that emptiness within uh, the frame. Uh, And and I found it attractive as a kid. And uh, so it was one of those things that let me into the strip too. I think also when you're younger, children, you know, are going to find, that an image perhaps, and I'm generalizing, but perhaps an yeah. image that is, is, um, fewer in, in elements as Schultz work is maybe those things are more accessible to a child's hmm. eye. That's true too. That's very, well, you certainly don't have as much to, in that sense, at least visually, you don't have as much to process. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things though, like we said, uh, earlier, that allows you to focus on some of the other components of the strip that are not present in something uh, even like little, like I, I love, you know, little Abner sure. or Pogo. Uh, I don't, you know, or tearing the pirates, you know, the standards Popeye, what penis lacks in that line in that, you know, use of spot blacks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It make it obviously makes up for, with the complexity of its emotional presentation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing to be able to convey more with less. Well, and literally convey more with less. I mean, would you be, if you were getting hung up on the beautiful lines in the trees in the background, would you be accessing the, the Charlie Brown's pain, you know, right. as, as, uh, I don't think this really as you do. Yeah, I don't think you would either. And and it's but yeah, you'd be interesting. Well, here's the difference. You know, on one hand, you go to the animated cartoons, right? And I've always or not only the animated cartoons, but then you can go to the CGI film of Peanuts. And as nice in their own way as they are and and two of them, you know, two of the Peanuts specials that of course loom larger are coming right up very shortly. Yes. And, and always uh, look forward to it every year. Me me too, even though I own a DVD. Oh I, sure, that's <laughs> different though. You but it is it different. TV. It is. You gotta see it on television. It's true. There's something celebratory yeah. about it. But yeah. even even whereas the world visual world is expanded to fit that space the space of the the viewing screen it somehow or another it doesn't 
it doesn't get me the same way, or I don't have, certainly don't have the same experience. It's not that now this is the interesting thing. Okay. So we're getting, does it work or doesn't work? Mm -hmm. Is, is this theory, does it play out or not? And I think by comparing the strip and in some ways, the animated shows, particularly those that are very successful. And I'm thinking of the Christmas special and the peanut and the uh, great pumpkin special, the emotional resonance of those comes across, even though the backgrounds and the environment is very, very rich. Yeah. You know, in those, I mean, it doesn't keep me from feeling for Charlie Brown. It doesn't keep right. me from feeling for, for Linus when the great pumpkin doesn't appear or, you know, or for Charlie Brown, uh, when he, when the tree falls over at the, right. Uh, so it's interesting, but a comic strip is a different world and it's built on a different foundation. It's not one. We don't necessarily expect the same things from a comic strip, but that, that world has a different architecture yes, you know, it does. in the world of an animated film. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different emotional space. It's certainly related. It's certainly similar. Um, and I don't know how, cause I think there's a, a moment, at least for me, as someone who, as a kid, encountered the cartoons first. Yeah. Uh -huh. And to move from the cartoons to the strip is, for me at least, was a, um, a, it was a weird little journey because it was definitely the thought of, oh, wow, hey, this is a, this is a comic strip too? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. And then to feel the, um, the first thing I noticed with the comic strip was how much more um, it seemed to me even and this by this point it would have been the you know uh, late seventies early eighties was uh, Charlie Brown seemed to me even more destitute in the strip than he did oh, in yeah. the cartoons absolutely and I don't know if I was ready for that as a kid like you I think I'm immediately like most I think like most kids you gravitate to Snoopy yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, his excitement, his energy, and then, you know, the silliness, you know, that you can get with uh, Woodstock or Pigpen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other characters. But then the, the um, you know, and you know that Charlie Brown's supposed to be the loser, like bad things happen to him, ha ha ha. But then there's something in the strip, and I don't know if it's because, uh, you know, in a strip, you make so much of the strip up in your head. Right. Uh, and it's, but it was an interesting thing for me, and I still think about that. Because I think about that, especially in terms of uh, Watterson, yeah. you know, as to why he wouldn't let Calvin and Hobbes uh, go into different mediums. And uh, I have to say, I understand why he did it, um, because I think every now and then I think one of the things, one of the obstacles, oddly enough, one of the obstacles to understanding Peanuts, as much as I love them, is the cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, there's just, there's, they're, they overlap. They're certainly yeah. by the same hand, but like you're just saying, there's something different and I, I can't put my finger on it between the, between the cartoon and the strip. Well, I, I feel okay that I feel like the strip is altogether, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's, it's much harsher than, and, and I don't want to say bleaker, but it, because I, I don't get a bleak feeling from no. Pete's never bleak it's it's yeah. too warm to be bleak and yeah. as chris ware points out and as you pointed out there's too much empathy yeah. and human kindness really you know we are that element within us that is so human is accessed via yeah. shows you know and it's opened up and while we don't necessarily pine for the little red-haired girl or we don't cry for charlie brown and we laugh at charlie brown a lot of the times right but at the same time it's there is a, a a sense that we also feel for Charlie Brown. We understand him, and and you know it sounds sappy, but in a way we hold out our hand to him. You know, yeah, we do as readers, right? And and we join together in our common humanity. And there, but but at the same time, the strip is is it's those moments of sweetness that are played for that quality in the animation. Those moments aren't there in the comic strip. You know? No, that's a good point. And I never, because that's a good point. I never really found that in the strip. And I guess that may go to your point earlier that, um, you know, when talking about the backgrounds and the settings, the backgrounds and the settings and the camera angles 
in the strip are far more restrained. Let's use the word restrained. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for good reason, obviously. You can't put this thing, you know, Coca-Cola just contracted you to do a Christmas special or a Halloween special. You better come up with one. Right. Um, but it is interesting. Does that does it's the similar feeling that those just like with the backgrounds where it's a restrained uh, it's a restrained performance visually in obvious. I'm probably stating the obvious, but in the strip. But it does have an emotional resonance to it. Yeah. You know, somebody in the in one of the essays in the Peanuts papers mentioned that uh, I think it was in that uh, that uh, that happiness is a warm puppy was not canon. That was something that was pulled together from a variety of different strips, but that whole, and it was a strip, right? You know, there is a strip like that, but it's a moment, a blip, you know, it's not characteristic. It's a mistake to think that that's characteristic of the tenor of comic strip. It's not. The tenor is much harder. You know, as Al Cap said, those kids are really mean, you know, and they they are really mean. (laughs) That's Al Cap. Doesn't that crack you up? I know. Coming right? from one of the meanest son meanest of a guns ever. I know, right? I know. Terrible person. Absolutely terrible human being. But uh, no doubt about it. But, you know, yeah, right? Those kids could be really mean. And, I mean, kids in general can be really mean. But the strip itself just has this starker quality to it that, that in long form, Schultz. And and in part because perhaps it's for a mass audience, it's for, he knows kids are going to be, I don't think he ever wrote specifically for kids. The great comic strip artists don't. He's writing for everybody, but not specifically for kids. But when he's working on the animated specials, perhaps he's thinking. That's a good question too. Yeah. Well, I don't think that that changes his, his approach to theme necessarily. No, I don't think so either. I do think that somehow or another he finds a way to mitigate the harshness with a certain tenderness that is, you know, maybe it's overplayed in some of the animation. Not so I much agree. Either. That's a really good point. I, I t- just sorry to interrupt, but I, cause I just had that same thought when I was thinking as well, one of the differences uh, with the, especially obviously the later ones, not necessarily the first two, um, but there is a sentimentality mm-hmm. in the, in the, um, the sen- like you were just saying about happiness as a warm puppy. Um, yeah. There's a distillation of a, of 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 a sentiment of the strip that by itself becomes sentimental. Yeah, exactly. And and it, I think it it distinguishes the animation, and it show. I think it does point back to the elemental quality that is really part of a comic strip. That that thing of of turning something out every day doesn't allow you to be quite as as um open and and broad in your in your reach well that's not entirely correct either but i'm i'm struggling for a way of describing that but the comic strip there's a certain mentality that comes with making a comic strip day in and day in day out and there's a certain kind of mechanics at play in in doing that and knowing you have to do it and uh it does make you edit I think much more strictly than you do in say an animated film or someplace where you have a half an hour to play with or something. I mean, it's not to say that an animated film doesn't get edited to the max and must, you know, I mean, all those stories do, but still a half hour is a lot more than, uh, you know, three panels and you've got to get your whole message across in three panels. You got to edit it pretty thoroughly. And yeah, well, by editing, you know, I think also what you're talking about with editing is thema- is really thematic shaping. Yeah. You know, I mean, you you have to be there. It, you can have an efficient cartoon, obviously, um, but having an efficient comic strip is of a different order. And I think yeah. of it as a little bit like, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, writing a poem or even a series of poems versus mm-hmm. writing even a short story. Yeah. You know, yeah. your your words in this case, your words and lines are going to carry or have to carry a disproportionate amount of weight yeah. of messaging weight. When you yeah. think about it with respect to, you know, as compared to uh, an animated an animated cartoon designed for uh, prime time. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would like to read more about what how Schultz because um, I haven't I've only really read about maybe him talking about his characters and him talking about his comic strip. I don't know if I've ever really focused on reading about um, 
about his experience, his creative experience in doing the uh, cartoons or the movies for that matter. Yeah, you know, I don't know that there's any I'm, – I'm trying to think now of what I've read. Almost everything I've read in terms of interviews or whatnot, I don't know of anything that really delves into any detail about his experience writing for yeah. the animated films or the animated specials. Um, and you've got to know that that – first of all, you know, you and I are both making comic strips. Yeah. We both know when you sit down to write a comic strip, you get into a groove and it's a certain mindset and it is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, yeah, three, four, one, one, two, three, four. And it's like you, you're playing that tune, that beat every over and over and over again in everything you write, you write it yeah. with that beginning, middle and an end to, to be encompassed in four panels, you know, yeah. and to write for a longer form and a longer form that must have seemed like endless. It must so, have seemed endless. Yeah. To somebody who's, you know, the biggest space you've got is maybe 12 panels for the Sunday. Right. I mean, yeah. and your whole story has to be told in there. And all of a sudden you're writing for uh, a, a much broader canvas. And, you know, that's a big change psychologically. And, and oh, I have a hard formally. time doing a Sunday. I mean, when the sure. Sundays, <laughs> whenever I just goof off and I try to do a Sunday or one time I did a, a full pager, like a good old fashioned full pager. Uh -huh. And yeah. it was remarkable. I mean, you just, and of course, everyone knows this, and you would know this intellectually even without doing it. But when you actually try, when I actually did it, it was even more astonishing to me how obvious it was that I had no idea about the rhythm <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be involved in these longer forms. Yeah. It's just, it's just like, wait, I got it. Wait, how, what? <laughs> I, you know, a lot of folks now, uh, I mean, Watterson had one approach to it, which was to expand the pictorial canvas, you know, to allow the dinosaur to roam freely, you know, in the space, right. to utilize it in a way that nobody had since the heyday of the Sunday strip, you know, yeah. back in Little Nemo's day. But yeah. um, cartoonists today, the, uh, a number of cartoonists today will utilize that space in a different way, um, sort of expanding the three or four panel strip so that the panels become bigger and they have more pictorial space but they don't necessarily have more you know text or more story involved mm -hmm. sometimes so that's another strategy for approaching it which is you know here's a here's an an opportunity to to extend myself graphically uh as yeah. to necessarily in you know plot wise and uh yeah the dinosaurs but, are a good example uh the spaceman spiff yeah, and I, uh, those are all really good examples. I think that's a reaction to the shrinking size of the newspaper. You don't have, I mean, trying to convey a story and then in that limited space and it's gotten smaller and smaller. And yeah. then all of the text that you want to use to convey that story, I think it, it becomes problematic. So you just begin to say, well, OK, maybe I'll just make this a really big panel and that way I, I can I can play. You know, yeah, artist. you're right. You know? Yeah, so I see, well, it's gonna, and that was another thing I found out when I was doing one of the, the 12 panel one, especially mm -hmm. the Sunday page, was when, uh, was exactly what you had mentioned earlier, which is, oh, wow, you know, I haven't really developed a vocabulary that would occupy that space. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm thinking I'm flashing on my experience over the last few months on the strip I'm doing, spiking the lens, right? Yes. And, and so, okay. In Spiking the Lens, I've constructed this visual world, and the visual world in Spiking the Lens is is pretty well defined. I think it's it's got a you know Pat Sandy said it had this '50s kind of look to it. It's got a, yeah. a you know a graphic kind of look and a relatively spare look when it comes to uh, the details within the strip. I like to use a few signifiers, and I don't want to build it up too much. And so it's got a very defined look within the strip within the strip there are these moments that are i i call them the sundays but they're not really sundays they're they're little mini comic books where a movie like one of the characters is in a movie or one of the characters is an extra in a movie oh and, fun and so i do the movie i play out the movie and when i sat down to draw these movies and to work out them visually the one I spent the most time over the summer uh, is called um, Poison Princesses of Pluto. And <laughs> so it had a totally, I mean, it was a much fuller, visually a much fuller environment wherein, you know, I felt like I had to draw 
and incorporate a lot more a lot more of the day-to-day elements, give it a certain sense of tangibility and reality that wasn't so graphically oriented uh, or, you know, intellectually oriented. It was more visually oriented and in the sense of its, its uh, veracity. And so, you know, it's like a strip within a strip. I mean, you're really developing a different vocabulary within the strip. Exactly. It's an entirely different vocabulary entirely. And it seemed to me when I was doing it, it was just intuitively, but this world, this, the world of the film that the character is in, it, it necessitates a different visual language than the strip itself, which is constructed upon, you know, different architecture and it suits the storyline. It's, suits the the psychology of it if you will you know it's just like these are two separate worlds one's a fictional world one's the real world within the comic strip do you find yourself stripping gears going back and forth between the two no actually i didn't um because that's fantastic yeah i didn't and i found although i loved doing the more fully fleshed out kind of detailed illustrations uh such as they were they were still pretty small and 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 format each panel was formatted for instagram that such as the world we live in today uh but what what i found was that because i had i had this mental distinction between the world of the film fictional film and the world of my characters that it was easy to move back and forth between them that's really interesting yeah and the language that was distinct between them so you know in that experience i wonder uh, you know again about schultz's experience if indeed that was a similar thing for him where he had this you know capacity for compartmentalizing you know animation yeah yeah, sure well do you mind if i just bring up one more point about uh your strips oh yeah sure yeah what I, and the one that has been capturing my attention has been your run on explaining what really the quote unquote true story about plastic baby heads. Oh yeah, with the syndicate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now I've. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just got through the one where the the baby heads ran up a hotel bill of yeah, five thousand dollars or something. Yeah. And now now there's another example of shifting gears. Oh yeah. Well okay. that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at some point, I mean, you're you're running a lot of gears here. I have a real like for me, it's basically, OK, Pirate Mike. It's why I was just talking about this with my wife uh, today. I'm like, I have one track. Uh-huh. <laughs> one track. It's, yeah, Pirate yeah Mike. it's Pirate Mike. You know, I am astounded or like, um, oh, gosh, it, when you can pull off that many. You're, so you're pulling off different voices within your same strip. But then you've got another strip, which is a meta strip about a different strip. Yeah. I mean, that it's a it's a versatile uh, it, it, like what you're saying about Schultz. It's amazing that the number of tracks that can be occupied uh, with these with either the same characters or in the same medium, but with different characters. And those are still considered all of them are still considered comics. Oh, yeah. It's, absolutely. it's pretty amazing to me. Well, you know, it's all part of, I think one of the things we get into is this thing of world building. And if you're, ah, good you know, I, I, I never really, I think I, when, I just get an idea and go with it, you know, yeah. and, and yeah, I also see. I have this kind of hunger to do different. I mean, I have a list of projects, you know, in front of me. And the problem that I've always had is that, uh, I get distracted and I want to go to the next project sure. and explore that, whether it's animation or then I come back and I want to do yeah, this. Yeah, pretty or... eclectic in that regard. Yeah, and it's been a problem. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, well the... there's, there, there can be a downside, definitely, because like you said, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many hours in the day, and the, and and it also has resulted in a kind of obscurity, you know, because I don't, you know, follow anything through to the umpteenth end you know and maybe i'll put it aside while i'm working on this other project and then come back to it again two years later but by that time whatever audience i had is totally gone you know like oh i was just gonna say like 10 years ago i was doing these um art comics you know these collage comics which i love doing and always want to go back to doing but you know when you're working on a comic strip you're just not going to do that because it's not going to happen you know you're too busy and you're too caught up in the world you're creating so right that that is um one of the things though but you know uh my 
I mean, one benefit of the kind of environment that I, I'm in is, uh, and the job that I have is that I have the freedom to do all this stuff. Yeah, and thank goodness. So yeah, it's it's. Well, look at look at hey. something like Noah Wiley. Look at Wiley. Uh, mm-hmm. non, I mean, he has his whole strip. He named it non sequitur. Oh I, yeah. I've been astonished that he has that He's, many he, trains running in the same strip. Yes. Again, like you're, you know, a strip within a strip, and then it's another strip within a strip. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, I I think when Schultz is and so when Schultz is bouncing around, that ha- I mean obviously that's the hub that you, like you, what you're pointing out is the world building, um, but it's still impressive that he's able to keep it straight. And one thing I do wonder. Mm-hmm. I would like to have known, and this is just, you know, I mean, pure speculation and possibly meaningless, was the bouncing around and doing the ads, doing the, uh, do the ads, doing the um, licensing, doing mm-hmm. the cartoons. Did he find that it refreshed him for the strip? Did yeah. he put the strip, was the strip more important than the rest of that? Like, I would like to find something where he talks, if at all, that he would uh, that he would talk about that. I find in a lot of interviews that um, sometimes he's willing to indulge in that kind of talk. Mm-hmm. And then at other times, I feel like his inner Minnesotan uh, steps in and says, well, let's not get hoity toity. <laughs> well, well, in the interviews that I've read, the strip is always first and foremost in his mind. Yeah. That, that is always, and I think that it always comes back to the strip. Everything generates there. And it's like that, that poster or the sign that was up in Al Cap studio, you know, the strip is first, the strip comes yeah. first. And I, and I think that that's in indeed, uh, the, the case for Schultz, no doubt about it. I think the strip was everything and came first and everything else came second. The, yeah. I think, you know, he built in the beginning, he probably had a lot more to do with the day-to-day operations of the, you know, licensing and stuff. But after a while, you know, he had people he trusted and that while he probably had final say on just about everything, um, that became such a huge behemoth that, you know, that I think that he had to entrust a lot of the day-to-day to a staff of some people. Yeah. But, um, who worked for the syndicate or whomever, you know? And yeah. I think, uh, in Michaelis's book, that's detailed. More, there's more detail about that okay. uh, biography, but when it came to everything else, yeah, I think, I think he was also invested in the animation. I think there was no yeah. doubt of that he was invested in that, but, but he, there's no place where I've read what you're asking is like, you know, did he find that a refresher for coming back yeah. to the strip? I don't know. You know, well, because I find most people assume that it took away from the strip, which I think is a fair assumption. I don't think it's unreasonable. The merchandising or the animation? Yeah. Oh, and the mer- that it distracted him or that it took away some focus of some sort, whether he acknowledged that or knew it or not. Well, but- you know what? Um, it's interesting. You and I, last time we talked, we talked about the Beatles, right? And one yeah. of the things, and this is true of... A lot of people say, well, you talk about the musicians of the 60s and what happened in the 70s, and they weren't as good in the 70s, which is debatable, but okay. So we're talking about people who were growing up from their 20s to their 30s. And what happens usually to young people in their 30s when they're they're establishing a home and they're raising kids? And I think when you have those kinds of natural distractions to your life, more people in your life, people around you, maybe somebody's gotten sick, you have no idea, you know, but all of that stuff when you're young and you're just starting out, you, 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 you know, you're just yourself. You can focus intently on just one thing and, and whether it's music or whether it's a comic strip or whatever, and get into that and nothing else distracts you. But as, as life progresses, you are going to be distracted and, yeah. and you can look at, at somebody as, as dynamic too, as Picasso. Uh, and, and yet there's no denying that as Picasso's life progressed and he became more and more uh, successful as time went on, the intensity of the work as great as some of the work still is the intensity of those years with Brock and those studios, uh, you know, in 1907, 1908, 90, the early teens, the intensity of those years is missing from the later years. And that's because you can't recreate that no, you can't. It's too complicated and it just doesn't allow for it. It's not to say that great work isn't being done, but it is to say that life is complex. And yeah, and, you know, and, well, and you Schultz know, is living life. And I think that's part of it. 
it's really it's the truth i think and i think maybe that's also what's interesting about schultz is and i and i you know to talk about what we talked about last time a little bit with uh looking at the beatles but also schultz's later line mm -hmm. um you know which i have a lot of affection for yeah sure um, too. and i think you know is viewed as well was it deficient was it this was it that and i would simply say well it's the line of a of an of an adult of an older adult male yeah you know, yeah. I don't think we need to go into whether it's better than this or better than that. I like to consider it on, you know, at, like what you're saying is like, OK, well, what does art look like when we're distracted in our 30s? Mm -hmm. And I think you get wings. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. You know? OK, yeah. you know, that's how I look at the Beatles is like, well, then you get wings. Yep. Um, and with Lennon, I think, unfortunately, that's one of, of obviously one of the multitudes of tragedies that stems from the tragedy of the way he died. Yeah. And I think it's even in his last interview saying, well, what does music sound like when it's made in your 40s? Yeah. You know, sure. I think that's and a good attitude to take. And it's one that with Schultz, you really can. You can say, OK, well, what does it look like to make a strip in your 60s when you have just like you're saying you've created a, you have this behemoth mm -hmm. that you are responsible for like okay well what's your strip going to look like then well yeah like this <laughs> yeah exactly you know, you know yeah and it's perfectly well it's all reflective of the 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 journey you know it's all reflective of the experience i think there is we have affection for schultz's line as as he ages uh i i have no issue you know i i mean i love his drawing no matter when you know and yeah uh, a Schultz, you know, uh, a Schultz tree is is still uh, a Schultz tree, you know, yeah. and and uh, so no matter when he drew it, and um, so those birch trees, you know, they they speak to me whether he is drawing them when he's in his seventies or when he's drawing them when he's thirty, and yeah, and there's that quality, that innate humanness that comes through the mark and the line, and I think one of the things that we love about Schultz when he's younger is is the humanity that comes through his drawing, which is a kind of magic act because he's not drawing pictures. It of, is. We're not talking about images of uh, religious icons or yeah. of, of figures who, you know, Rembrandt painting, you know, or right. something where scenes of tragedy or, or sorrow or, or humanity. We're talking about little drawings of these big-headed kids, one getting knocked off the pitcher's mound every other throw with his socks flying in. with his socks flying right and we're talking and yet within that there is this enormous humanity there's this enormous truth yeah well his like what you're saying earlier i mean his lines his lines carry a disproportionate burden of weight of mm -hmm. a, it carries the weight of communicating so much yeah Yep. And it is, um, I understand, like, I remember when I was, you know, when I was a kid and you find out that Charles Schultz bought the whole uh, inventory of, uh, what was the pen he used? Oh, I can't remember the name of yeah, it. The, yeah, the, the pen he, you know, the, yep. the, dip, the nib. Yep. And I remember as a kid thinking, well, why the heck would you do that? Just go down the store and buy another nib. Right? <laughs> a nib's a nib's a nib. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you start to realize, like, even he knew. You know, and you don't want to mess with that equation. Right. You know, because you don't know, well, how is that Schultz line created? Well, I'll tell you, at least at least as far as he can tell, one way it's created is by the intermediary of whatever that nib is. Yes. I'm looking it up. Esterbrook Radio Dip Thank Pen. Thank you. That's what it is. The Esther used Esterbrook's radio dip pen nib number 914 to ink Thank peanuts. You. And that's that he bought out the entire run of those of those yeah. pen points and um what well, what works for you is what works for you and yeah. uh, you know you find that language and you, the tools and you you stick to it because they reveal something it's not that i i think schultz would have communicated no matter what pen he used but he knew yeah. this tool was the one that worked best for him it was the one he was comfortable with and he didn't have to think about you know yeah well it's a, it's a kentucky fried chicken don't mess with the recipe <laughs> Mission time, folks, and uh, it's time to give your ears a rest, I think, from Brad and my marathon-length discussion, which goes on for at least another hour. So uh, I've decided just, you know, to take pity on you and break it into two parts. So um, be expecting the second part to drop in the next few days 
maybe a week at the most. I've been on the road and continue to be on the road, so I'm kind of recording this on the fly, and it's it's a hectic time, very hectic time. So I apologize for the lateness with this episode, and with the uh, the kind of quick hellos and goodbyes, but um, it's unavoidable at this moment. But hey, rest assured, at the end of the month, we'll be back, and we have some good stuff lined up for the future, so uh, be on the lookout for that. Hey, in the meantime, if you you need a Peanuts fix, uh, check out It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown by Bill Pepper, available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh it's a podcast. Charlie Brown is filled with all kinds of great information, wonderful interviews, and and fun facts, and more than that, all about our favorite comic strips. So be sure to check out "It's a Podcast." Charlie Brown available wherever podcasts are sold, or something. Anyway, just sounded good. But anyway, it's a podcast. Charlie Brown. Be sure to check it out. Okay. And I will be back. Uh, no, I'm going to be on the road. Like I said, I'm 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 traveling. I'm, I don't know whether I'm coming or going, but uh, one way or the other, I'm going to get a podcast out to you and uh, hope that it's something you enjoy. The second part of this coming out very shortly, if not in a couple of days, it'll be out by next week. So be looking for it. Uh, I think by then your ears will have recovered and you might be ready for some more of Brad and myself. Uh, celebrating the first year anniversary of Blockhead. So, till then, thanks for listening.